You know, we're here for at least three reasons. First of all, we just want to express our gratitude to you. 16 years, you have ministered in Croatia through us. We are your missionaries. We are accountable to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're accountable to you that we do the work of our Lord. And uh, it's a privilege to be here. You have greetings from our church in uh, Mursko Središče in Croatia. You have greetings from our Bible school, from the students, from the people of our church. They're praying for us. They're praying for you. And so the first words out of my mouth have to be, we thank our Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, for this church and for your faithfulness, because your faithfulness comes by the grace of, of Him, who f- gives grace freely to all of us. But we, we couldn't do it without you, and that's certainly a fact. So we want to say thank you. We also want to tell you a little bit about what we're doing because we're accountable to you. We want to give you a report of what the Lord is doing. And then finally, I want to encourage you in the Word of God and ask for your prayers, your continued prayers for us. We need your prayers. We need your support uh, for the Lord to do His work through us. You know, I love being in Bear Valley. Even the smattering of rain last night was uh, refreshing, but uh, we love coming here. And one of the things that I love is just to see all the wildlife. I was, we were just in Alaska a few days ago, and we saw nothing, nothing. Now we've seen bears and uh, bears. <laughs> I want to see a bear. We've seen a bobcat. We've seen deer. We've seen squirrels, dogs, and cats. But, uh, so it's really fun to see all this wildlife. But it's also fun to see these horses. And I'm sure some of you own horses. Is that right? Some of you do. So all of those of you who own horses know more about horses than I know. But many lifetimes ago, I was a cowboy on a ranch, and I love horses, love to go to rodeos. My favorite horses are those sleek, cutting horses that can call a calf from a herd, and they're so smart, and they're so quick. Their sinews, their muscles are just bulging, and I love them. They're beautiful, just beautiful. But in my life, growing up in Texas, I always had a, an affinity to draft horses. We don't see those much anymore, do we? These workhorses, burly animals that just day by day do the work that they're called to do, and uh, seemingly without complaint, I don't care how big the stump is or how big the rocks are, how big the field is to be plowed, they do the work. Like I said, we don't see that much anymore. When I first went to Croatia, we lived in a village, and they still plowed fields with horses. So early in the morning, you'd see this horse on the side of a field plowing and steam coming off his body as his muscles were straining against the plow or against tree stumps or rocks or a big wagon full of rocks. And it was just fun to see these horses work. And the longer I am a missionary, I can relate to these guys. (laughs) I really do believe that missionary work is a plodding work. We just plod. Now, I love to read missionary biographies. I love to read about John Patton in the New Hebrides Islands or William Carey in India or Hudson Taylor in China, Adoniram Judson in Burma. These guys are stars, seemingly, in God's redemptive plan. These missionaries went and gave their lives, and it's amazing what God did through these. But for the all the pages written about these great men and women, and, they, and God used them in great ways. And I, I would aspire to that. But for all the pages written about these men and women, there are thousands upon thousands of pages written about men and women 
who plod along day by day doing the work of the gospel and sometimes not seeing the fruit that others may get to see. And if I can explain the work in Croatia, just so you know, I seek no pity. I seek no passion from you guys because why would I? We get to serve the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who gives us more grace than we deserve. And being a missionary is the greatest adventure of my life. I love it dearly. I'm called to that. It is the greatest thing that I can imagine on earth is to be a missionary. So I seek no pity, but I'm just going to say sometimes it's difficult. We just plod along. Sometimes we don't see the fruit we want to see. Sometimes we don't see the conversions we would love to see. Our churches are small. We go years without seeing anyone saved. And it's just plodding each day. The field looks enormous. The rocks are everywhere. Tree stumps are everywhere. The fields are ruined. The soil is no good. And we just try to go out. And this is why we need your prayers. In Croatia... If you read on the internet or in books, it might tell you that we're about 90 to 95% Roman Catholic. But as a missionary, it feels like it's 100% Roman Catholic. We know, I personally know two atheists from the communist era. And everybody in their families are Catholics. So there may just be a handful of people who are not Catholics, but I've never, I've, I rarely meet those people. And the reason I bring that up is sometimes it's maybe lost on people in America because of some doctrine that goes around ecumenical theology or whatever, and we may forget that this is a satanic religion that really damns people to hell. It's that serious. These people are lost. The field is large, and it's filled with so many obstacles, and those obstacles come in the form of a religion that prevents people, blinds people from seeing the truth. Now I'm going to ask you, what's the first thing that we need to know if we want to be saved? What's the first step of the gospel? little difficult quiz, first service. What's the first thing that somebody needs to understand if, they can, if they're going to repent and receive Christ as a Savior? We're sinners. What a despicable doctrine to the world. If you're on the wrong side of salvation, that may be the most, most loathsome doctrine you've ever heard. Ephesians, 3, uh, Ephesians 2, 1 and following says that, that every man... Every woman, every child is born spiritually dead. If you've ever seen or been with someone who has died, it's not a very beautiful or wonderful thing to be around. And you know at that moment the finality of death is just so clear. They are unresponsive. You long to hear their voice one more time. You long to feel their touch one more time. Just to hear their laugh. And their bodies are unresponsive. Your tears cannot bring them back. The love in your heart cannot make them speak to you. They are unresponsive. That is the spiritual condition of every man, woman, and child. We was asked to these young, beautiful, beautiful children, which one of you has honest eyes? The answer is none of them. Without Christ. Isn't that a horrible doctrine? But it's a sweet doctrine for those of us who belong to Jesus Christ. Because it's our only hope for justification. It's our only hope to to live out what we sung this morning. To be consecrated. To worship our Savior. To live for Him. To seek holiness and righteousness in our lives. We need to understand that there's only one who has strength. Cursed is the man who, who trusts in his own flesh. Right? Like Hercules. But blessed is the man who trusts in the arm of our God. Who is a Savior. 
And the problem is, within this religion, the doctrine of depravity of man is despised, ignored, and condemned. Now, they may talk about sin, but it's not biblical sin. It's the type of sin that you can erase by going into a closet and talking to a priest. They may talk about Jesus, but it's not our Jesus, the once and for all sacrifice on the cross. They may talk about salvation, but it's not eternal salvation. And so every day, these lost people go through the motions of the sacraments, knowing that the priest holds their eternal life in their hands. That's an amazing thought, isn't it? I remember once, I may have shared this story with you, I, was, I had the privilege of preaching a funeral, but I shared the funeral with a priest. And the priest performed the funeral, the first half of the funeral, and then I went to the graveside and I preached. The priest was not happy that I was there. He did not want me to speak, but the family requested that I would speak. And halfway through the... Well, we moved to the grave, and about that time, our Baptist church was singing hymns, and we're standing there, the priest in his flowing robes, and I was dressed about the way I'm dressed right now, and I'm just standing there waiting to speak. There's 300 unbelieving people that I'm about to preach the gospel to, and the priest looks at me and says, there is no way I'm handing you this mic. No way. So I'm a little nervous. <laughs> the family members see this. They walk over to the priest. They say, hey, look, we're paying for this. This man's going to speak. But this priest seemed adamant, but when the singing stopped, he actually handed me the mic. Well, I was nervous. I preached for about 15, 20 minutes on new birth, salvation by faith alone. And then at the end, I said something that I thought was very benign, very mild. Not, I think I just preached the power when I was speaking about faith in Christ alone and new birth. And then I said, look, I'm thankful for all of you who came and gave your condolences to the family today. And I want to invite you to our church this, this evening. We're going to have a church service. We're going to sing songs about Jesus Christ. And I'm going to preach about Jesus Christ from the Bible. And you're all invited to our church. About that time, this priest is just shaking with anger, grabs the mic from me. And he can't even speak because of the anger. And he says, what do you think he's mad about? Not my sermon. I said, we're a church. And he said, a church? He says, no church? Did you see these people today? Did any of them recite the prayers with us? Did any of them cross themselves? When's the last time you've seen any of these people at, our ma- at the Holy Mass? These pe- this is no church. And he kept hammering that and hammering that. After that, we had an evangelistic Bible study in our house and unbelieving Catholics would come and they stopped coming. Why? Because the priest holds their eternal life in his hands. And if he condemns our church, our church is anathema. It is condemned. It's an amazing thing. But he, has, he cares nothing about worship or consecration or righteousness or holiness or wor- the exaltation and the magnification of our Holy Savior, Jesus Christ. That means nothing. It's the sacraments. It's the steps. We can justify ourselves. All we have to do is be baptized as an infant. Now we're sanctified and we begin the lifelong, more than lifelong because it extends into purgatory, process of justifying ourselves through the sacraments. The Mass, the Confession, First Communion, Confirmation, Weddings, the Last Rites, and the doctrine of the depravity of man is absent. Nobody knows they're a sinner. And that's led to a a culture that has no idea of morality. Nobody's a sinner. Nobody's lost. Nobody needs a Savior. All we need 
is this religion. All we need are the sacraments. It's a completely immoral nation that has the word in their vocabulary, hypocrisy, but has no concept of what that means. I could tell you many stories. I'll tell you one. I shared it last night when we had dinner. I'm going to share it again because to me, like I said, I have many of these stories, but one maybe communicates it most clearly. Immorality means nothing because basically, even if you're a Catholic, we're all the products of evolution. We're basically animals. And to do what animals do, how can that be right or wrong? There is no right or wrong. There is no moral standard. There is nothing that can dictate to us how we are to behave. So once we had a single woman in our church. And uh, we're, our church is in Croatia, but on the border of Slovenia. So in our church, we have several Slovenians. And she happens to be a Slovenian woman. And this Slovenian man started attending our church. And he came regularly. Well, I'm thinking the Lord is working in his heart. This man is near salvation. So one day he calls me. He says, Todd, he's about in his mid-50s. He's very formal. And, I, you know, I'm looked at as a priest, okay? I'm a Baptist priest. I'm the, the Baptist priest of that cult that doesn't believe in Mary. He calls me and he says, um, you're the spiritual leader of this church. I really need to talk to you. And I'm ecstatic because rarely do you have these opportunities. I'm thinking of the Philippian jailer who's going to say, what must I do to be saved? And so I'm preparing, I'm praying, I'm excited. I go to this meeting of coffee and basically here's the conversation. Now I'm trying to be delicate. He says, you know, I'm very interested in this woman in your church. I would like to have an intimate relationship with her. But she says that because she loves Jesus Christ, she can't do this. Now, you and I both know something terrible has happened in her life to have such a strange view of Christ and life because this is normal. So I would like for you to go to her and counsel her to have this intimate relationship with me. Well, I'm telling you, I couldn't even comprehend, couldn't receive what he was saying. So I repeated it back to him. You want me to talk to her so that she will have this intimate relationship with you and I have some sort of authority since I'm her spiritual leader. Yes. So then I went into the gospel with this man. My point is, there's no boundaries. There's no standard. Hypocrisy means nothing. The priest that can disseminate grace... Um, receives money for every action they do, whether they bless your house, your cattle, your crops, your car, uh, your bread, whatever they do, it costs money, but it's just a blessing from them. And he may bless your vineyard and then get drunk with you on the wine. And it doesn't matter. He holds the keys to the kingdom of heaven in his hands. It doesn't matter if his hands are dirty. All I'm saying is, when we're out plowing this field, The obstacles are to communicate the gospel to a country that has not had the gospel witness for 900 years. 60 years of communism. It is about as immoral as can be, and nobody believes they need a savior. Nobody can ever imagine, ever, that they're so far gone that they're dead in their trespasses. Now, you think that's bad. Now we have churches that are filled with people who have converted from Catholicism. When they do, they lose their families. 
they are ostracized. And over there, the only way you can live, because it's so expensive to live in Europe, so expensive, the only way you can live is by living with your family members. They're your means for life. But families are also very strong, very, they are the fabric of the, of the, of the culture. And to be ostracized from your family is to be dead. You can't find work. You lose your jobs. You lose your family. You lose everything. So the churches begin to think that evangelism may mean getting people to understand that we're not so bad. So the gospel is no longer about you're a sinner who needs a savior, but Christ died on the cross for your sin, and all you have to do is believe in his once and for all sacrifice, and you can have eternal life, abundant life today, eternal life with him, and you can finally be righteous and holy in him. That message is not the important message. What's important is, hey, we're not so bad. Come to our church. Be a part of our club. The gospel is watered down. The pastors are sadly, oftentimes not qualified. They don't seek sanctification in their lives. They don't seek Christ. And they're the pastors. And like Hosea says, like priests, like people. If the pastors are weak and don't seek sanctification, you can't hope much more for that in the churches. Not only that, ecumenism is such a big thing because if we can't beat them, let's join them. So let's just blur all the lines. Let's blur the lines of sin. Let's blur the lines of Christ. Let's blur the gospel. Not only that, when they do preach, it's moralistic preaching. Do you know what moralistic preaching means? It means go out there and be good. Just be good. Be a good husband. Be a good wife. Be a good mother. Be a good father. Be a good child. Be good with no mention of the enabling power of God's Holy Spirit, the sufficiency of God's Word, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the goal of worshiping Him, the goal of living for Him, that's absent. So here we have this field full of rocks and weeds and stumps and soil that's so bad, and then the church becomes watered down because they're tired of being ostracized. Compromises everywhere, and we're like these draft horses and it's hard to get up in the morning. Again, I'm not seeking pity. I'm trying to give I'm trying to be transparent. Look, we've been partners for 16 years. Hopefully we can be real transparent today and real open and just say, "You know what? It's hard. It's hard to be a missionary. That's why we need your prayers. That's why we need your support because it can only happen through the power of our savior Jesus Christ." So what do we do? How do we respond in that type of environment? Well, we do all that we know to do. We have his book. We have his truth. We have the word of the living God. We publish books that help people understand the word of God. We've published over 20 books in 16 years. We train pastors. We have a four-year, five-year Bible school where we're training pastors to believe in this word, to preach the gospel in its fullness, in its entirety, to tell people that they are lost and they need a savior. We train them to know the Word of God and to preach the Word of God. Not only that, we preach. We do seminars. We preach conferences. We do youth conferences. We have weekend seminars. Right now we have a weekend seminar that's once a month, and I have 35 to 40 people coming to hear a survey of the New Testament. Praise God, because we're plowing. We're, We're actually just clearing the field probably, but we're seeing some fruit there. It's phenomenal. I'm so happy to see this fruit of 16 years. It's still small, but I want to see so much more. But that's what we do. 
We preach, we teach, we evangelize. And yet every day it looks like that field is still full of all the obstacles that it was 16 years ago. And we just have to get out there and plod and plod and plod. That's why we need your prayers. That's why we want your prayers. We have to have your prayers. But now, if you think I've been transparent, I'm going to be really transparent. Sometimes, I'm just tempted to think they're all cursed. Come on. 900 years and you've spurned the gospel for that long? You've clung to a religion? You've invited communism? There is no God into your country? You have no morality? Hypocrisy is an unknown concept? You're cursed. I'm ready to knock the dirt off my feet and go home. That's why I need your prayers. But now, what do I have? 12 minutes. (laughs) Now I'm going to preach. Okay? There's the context. Now I want to tell you what gives me encouragement. I'm going to tell you what helps me wake up in the morning. It's the most fantastic thing in the world. Open your Bibles to Genesis 9. And you may think, wow, Genesis 9, we're going to find the hope of missions in Genesis 9. I'm going to tell you right now, we're going to find the hope of missions in Genesis 9. Okay? Wonderful passage, wonderful event in God's plan of redemption. We know what's happened, right? God's Spirit does not strive with men forever. The sin of man has became a stench and a foul odor and then odor in the nostrils of God and he said, since man, since man is depraved, right? He is uh, 6.5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's depravity. Depravity doesn't mean that you're the worst person possible. It, basically, it means you have no capability of saving yourself. You're dead. The stain of sin stains everything you do. Romans 14.23 says that anything done absent of faith is sin. Anything outside of Christ is sin. So no matter what you are, no matter how good you are, sin stains everything. And God says the stain is sickening. So he blots out all of humanity and begins again with Noah and his three sons. Just so you know, we're all descendants of Noah's three sons, right? Okay? That's the point. Here's the beginning of humanity, but it begins on a very sour note. Because Moses found grace in in the eyes of the Lord, right? And and we read about that in chapter 6, 8 through 9. It says, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. doesn't mean he was perfect. It means he was saved. But we all know that saved people can sin. That's why we need to always be aware of the depravity of man. Even after salvation, we depend wholly, solely upon God. And Noah does what men do. Chapter 9, let's just read verse by verse and just talk about this. 9, 20 and following. 20 and 21, we read this sad story. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. The progenitor of all men, the man who walked with God, the man who God used to save humanity and to become so that we can live today, is drunk and naked in his tent. Well, that's a pretty sour way to start the beginning of new life, humanity on earth. Just so you know, we can speculate about what was happening in this tent, but it would just be speculation. And Noah's sin is not important in this story. You know what's important? The response of his sons. The story is about how his sons responded. One son, Ham, saw his father in his tent, 
And he did not respect his father. Again, we don't know what he did. But he clearly did not respect his, his father. Verse 22. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Now, we don't know what he did. Maybe he just made fun of his father in front of his brothers, you know, kind of made a joke of the whole thing. Whatever it was, we know that he did not respect his father, and children are commanded to respect their parents. I don't care how old you are. You have to respect your parents. Ham did not. But then on the other hand, we see the response of Sham and Japheth. They honored Noah in spite of his behavior. He didn't deserve their honor. He didn't deserve their respect, but they gave it to him. This is an act of faith. This is a righteous act. Verse 23. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces did not see their father's nakedness. They didn't even look at him. Okay. Strange story, right? When Noah was sober, he discovered what had happened. One son, Ham, had disrespected him. The other two sons, Shem and Japheth, honored him. Therefore... We read in 25 to 27, when Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, cursed be Canaan. Interesting. Didn't say cursed be Ham. Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servants. Now, okay, this is the beginning of all the nations. We don't have time. Time is going fast. Just so that you know, these are the sons that gave life to all humanity on earth. Ham is going to have a son. What is very interesting is, why did Noah not curse Ham? Why did he curse his son? Well, I don't know. But I kind of think he's saying, look, my son acted shamefully toward me, his father. Therefore, his son will be cursed to live shamefully as a slave among his brothers. In this, Ham will understand my pain and his shameful disobedience. Now, Ham had four sons. I don't want to be complicated, but they're the fathers of the Africans, the Ethiopians, the Egyptians, and the North African tribes. But also he's the father of Canaan, which was a North African tribe. But where did Canaan settle? In Africa? We all know he settled in Israel. And became the enemy of the nation of God. Shem is the father of the Jews. The ultimate father of Jesus Christ. The whole curse here. If I can just put it quickly in a nutshell. So that we can move on. Because I want to show you something fantastic in this. Shem will ultimately give birth to the Savior. The Messiah. Japheth will find comfort as his tents dwell in the shade of that Messiah. The point is. At this time. In the history of redemption. God, through Noah, through Noah's curse and blessings, is saying salvation is only going to be in one. That's the son of Shem, the son of Israel, the ultimate Israelite, Jesus Christ. If you don't believe in him, there will be no salvation. Okay, we all know that as we read through the Bible, but that's what's happening here. But he said there will be a tribe that's cursed, Canaan. They will be outside the grace of God. They will be God's enemies. They will be cursed. They will be the blight In the nation of Israel, they will be the enemies of God's chosen nation, and they are cursed. Wow, this is serious. It's as if God is saying there are people outside the grace of God. Now, Shem is the father of the Semitic people, the Arabs and the Jews. Japheth is the father of the Europeans, the father of us. I don't know who the father of the Chinese are specifically, but 
they're all the fathers of all humanity, okay? I hope this is not complicated, but this is important for, we, for us to understand. Shem, the father of Israel, the father of Jesus Christ, the source of salvation. Japheth and all of us will find comfort and salvation under him. But Canaan, one of the sons of Ham, are going to be cursed and outside the grace of God. Now, the point is, if you want God's blessing, you better have a relationship with Shem. You better have a relationship with his son, Jesus Christ. So much more I can say. I hope I'm being clear because I want to go to something and tell you how I have comfort as a missionary. Now, I told you that sometimes I look at the people around me and I have a feeling if you're involved in evangelism, you do the same thing. Who do you evangelize? Your family, those who are polite to you, those who are nice to you, but that neighbor who's always vulgar and profane and swearing and yelling, you kind of pretty much figure he's cursed. I'm not going to talk to him too much about the gospel, right? So can we all relate a little bit? Whether we say those words or not, there are some people we avoid with the gospel, some people we tell the gospel to. Can we at least be transparent enough to say that? Oftentimes, we don't want to evangelize everybody. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, nobody's cursed. Okay? I want to illustrate this. And this is the grace of God. In this horrible, dark moment of cursing and the beginning of humanity after the flood... God is going to give us a lesson that I hope none of us forget. Nobody is outside the grace of God. I don't care how profane they are. I don't care how immoral they are. I don't care how much they hate us. They just, we are here to, to spread the gospel to every human being. So let's skip forward. We have three sons, Shem, the Israelites, Japheth, the, Euro, the Europeans, Ham, um, we can say Ham, all the other nations uh, the eastern nations around Israel, and then we have one group of people, the Canaanites, who are cursed. So Shem, Israelites, Japheth, Europeans, Ham, the nations around Israel, and then Canaan. Now let's just skip forward. We're not going to go there. I'm going to give you another quiz. Think about the book of Acts. Who did God save in chapter 8 of the book of Acts. Can you think hard? Who? Somebody said it, I think. The Ethiopian eunuch. Oh my goodness. Who's that? This is North Africa. Whose son is this? Ham. Oh my goodness, the birth of the church? The first people God saved is the son of Ham. The North Africans. Now, who gets saved in chapter 9 of Acts? Saul. What was Saul? What was the nationality? A Jew. Son of Ham in chapter 8. The son of Shem in chapter 9. Okay. Two out of three. What about chapter 10 of Acts? Who gets saved? Cornelius. What was Cornelius? It's a Gentile. A Gentile. So now what we have is Ham, Shem, and Japheth, God, as he gives birth to the church, he says, you know what? They're all within my grace. My son died so all of them can be saved. That's, this is what gets me up in the morning. Croatians are the sons of Japheth. If God says that they're savable, why would I think otherwise? 
Why would I ever withhold the gospel from somebody that God says, I sent my son to die so that they could hear the glorious news that he died on the cross for the forgiveness of their sin. Go out into all the world, the sons of Ham, the sons of Shem, the sons of Japheth. Oh my goodness, but we have one more group. Oh my goodness. Okay, can I have three minutes? One more group, the Canaanites. I want to tell you guys something. Just don't ever forget this. The Canaanites are gone. God has obliterated them. They don't exist anymore. They're gone. But I think God gave us a very interesting object lesson. Hebrews preserved preserved the life of one Canaanite woman. And in Matthew 15, at least one, for this one story, she's the Syrophoenician woman in Matthew 15, 21 through 28. Do you remember this story? Anytime you read in the Bible and you read the word behold, Something amazing is happening right now. And in Matthew 15, 21 through 28, we read, And behold, a Canaanite... Now remember, if you're a Jew reading this, what are you reading right now? This cursed woman outside of the grace of God, impossible to be saved, the worst of the worst, this Canaanite woman from that region came out saying, How dare she say this? Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. How dare she approach the son of Shem. She is a Canaanite. She doesn't deserve to be in his presence. Cursed. Can you imagine? Boy, the historical and theological impact of this conversation is monumental. And any Jew who has ever read this knows how horrible this is. This is disgusting. She's one of the last remaining members of the Canaanite tribe. And like I said, I think God preserves her for us to learn a lesson here. You know what Jesus did? Just like any son of Sham, he ignores her. Verse 23, but Jesus did not answer her a word. Oh my goodness. Jesus is the son of God. He knows she's cursed. And in that same verse, the disciples just want her to leave. She's dirty. She's not like us. She's that vulgar neighbor I have. He's disgusting. I can't stand looking at him. He's not spiritual. He's outside the grace of God. I don't want to evangelize him. Can she just leave? Ignoring her is not enough. And so then they say, Jesus, send her away for she is crying out after us. She is bothering us. We don't like her. Jesus agrees. Well, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, not to these Canaanites. This is dramatic, isn't it? Jesus came only to the Jews, sons of Sham. Clearly this woman, if you've ever thought somebody is cursed, clearly this woman is cursed. You know what? Jesus speaks really strongly to her. Now, if you call a woman a dog, that's not a good term, right? And it never has been. Never has been. Jesus says, she's a dog. You're a dog. It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Salvation does not belong to you. Why are you in my presence? Now I'm paraphrasing. This is basically her response. And I'm paraphrasing. She goes, I know. I get it. I get it. I'm a dirty Canaanite. I know who you are. And I know who I am. You're the son of Sham. And I am the daughter of Canaan. And you know what? I don't deserve your salvation. I'm not worthy of your love and your mercy. I don't deserve a few seconds of your time. I am a dog, both in your eyes and in the eyes of everyone around me. But Lord, 
Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. I'm only asking for crumbs. I do not deserve to sit at the table with you and with the others. What did Jesus say? Oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done to you for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed. Even the cursed tribe of Canaan are not outside the grace of God when they come by faith. Isn't that amazing? Croatians are not outside the grace of God. I have to remind myself that. Your neighbor that gets on your nerves is not outside the grace of God. The guy that cuts you off on the road is not outside the grace of God. We need to be careful of how we treat others. We need to know that we've been entrusted with a message that transcends time, transcends sin. This woman understood the depravity of man. And she came the only way anybody can come to Christ. Bankrupt in spirit, open hand and said, I just trust. Jesus says, you're saved. I took too much of your time this morning. Thank you for your patience. Why are we missionaries in Croatia? Because God can save a Syrophoenician woman. We sang a song. The fields of hope are harvested in heaven. Right? Love that line. We're out there clearing rocks, clearing stumps, trying to get the soil fertilized, and it seems daunting. seems impossible. Here's what I want you to pray for us. I'm closing, I promise. I just got to read one more verse, please. Galatians 6, 9. Pray this for us, and let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. We need endurance. I want to give up many days. My wife wants to give up many days. We want to say those people are cursed and we want to leave. I'm being very open with you. Pray that we continue for the glory of God. Pray that we plod. Let's pray. God, you're good. You are the Savior. You are merciful. Your salvation is for every man, woman, and child who comes to you by faith. If there's anyone here today who does not have salvation... I pray that they will run to you with open arms saying, I have nothing in me, but I want to trust in you. Give me faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.